Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. So Jim Rickards just came out with his 2024 predictions. And I think they are spot on, to be honest with you. Most of them. I don't agree with everything. But boy, oh boy, are they worth going into. And I actually did a panel at the New Orleans Investment Conference, uh, I think last year, with Jim. And it was a geopolitical panel. I don't know why they wanted me on that, but <laughs> we were going back and forth and uh, pretty much every single thing that Jim was talking about on that geopolitical panel, it all panned out. It all came to fruition. So we'll have to give him a hat tip for getting that right for sure. But let's get over to this article from Zero Hedge and check this out. 2024, here's what happens according to Jim Rickards. So he starts off by talking about the election and kind of what's going on with Trump. And although that is interesting, we'll go over it here briefly. I want to more focus on the economic stuff that he's talking about, because that's where I really, really agree with him. So he says, uh, let's address the election. As we all know, he's an attorney, but he's not a constitutional scholar, although he says he studied it uh, in college from a professional that was very good. Okay, first of all, it's not even clear that the Constitution provides uh, – wait a minute here. It's not even clear that the constitutional provision they cite, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, even applies to presidents. Okay, we got that. In the second case, it's evident that Colorado, Maine exceedingly exceeded their authority by claiming Trump as a participant in J6, if you want to call it that. Keep it YouTube-friendly. <laughs> It's crazy. Now we got to go from the Cerveza sickness to JSIC. Trump never really formally charged with this uh, in a court of law. Certainly never been connected and uh, convicted again. Where's the due process? He says it's headed for the Supreme Court. Uh, and then now we get into things that, uh, you know, I, you can't dis you can't dispute right here. He's talking about uh, that Biden is the most unpopular president in modern history with a recent poll revealing 37% approval rate. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> that ain't good. So he's saying that Biden won't even make it to November. He believes that there's going to be uh, a different democratic nominee, namely Newsom, Gavin Newsom, Jay Pritzker, Gretchen Whitmere, or Jennifer Granholm. I don't know any of these people except Newsom. So if I had to go with one, if I had to put my money, it'd probably be Gavin out of all these. Unfortunately, man, that guy is, is he is like the quintessential slimy used car salesman. All he needs is like a plaid like jacket, <laughs> like a plaid, like a plaid sports coat, and he could be selling you like a fifteen hundred dollar. 1984 Ford Taurus <laughs> or whatever. I mean, geez. Anyway, moving down here. He says, forget Kamala Harris. She's too much of a liability. Now we're getting into the economic stuff, as you can see by <laughs> a lot more of it highlighted. That other stuff is very, very important, as we all know, but it's just, this interests me more. It's just my, uh, my cup of tea. So he's talking about should be a banner year, and he's being sarcastic. To repeat, my other forecast for 2024, China, U.S., and Japan will fall into recession by the first part of the year. The EU is already in recession, so rare global recession will result in 2024. Rare? 
okay, maybe historically rare, but I think since we've had global global excuse me globalization, and because the euro dollar system banking network is so interconnected, there's so much systemic risk. I I don't know. I, I, it's possible, but I think the probability would be very very low nowadays that you have a recession in China, U.S. and Japan. Uh, well, maybe not Japan, but China and the U.S. and or and or Europe, the EU, and that doesn't lead to a global recession. In fact, one thing I wanted to point out here, I actually wrote this down, is we look at the yield curve constantly in the United States, and we know that this is a very good predictor of recession, hard landing. But what we also have to understand is the U.S. Treasury market is basically the global bond market. Uh, you might not like that, and uh, I don't like that because... Uh, you know, I think it, it, it can contribute to the United States being able to spend more than it otherwise would be able to spend. And that's definitely a negative, but it, it is what it is. So we have to acknowledge that. So if the curve is massively inverted, it could mean that it's not just predicting what's happening in the United States. That's my point. It's more so predicting what's happening in the global economy. So then the argument is going to be, well, okay, George, if we have a recession in China and Japan and EU, that doesn't mean we have a recession in the United States. Okay, again, there, there are no certainties. There are only probabilities. But with as interconnected as the global economy is right now, and especially, like I said earlier, looking at this through the lens of the euro dollar banking system, I think the chances that the United States would avoid recession if the entire globe or the other major economies were having that hard landing, I think that's that's very, very unlikely. Getting back to the article. I also predict that Russia will advance toward ultimate victory in Ukraine. Uh, I mean, I'm not a geopolitical expert, but it seems as though just from what I'm seeing in the news, that's probably a likely outcome. He says there will be no negotiation until Zelensky's gone. So I have no opinion on that, but I find that interesting. Meanwhile, if escalation scenarios play out in the Middle East, even in part, except oil, expect oil prices at 150 a barrel. Now, we see what's happening recently with, I haven't covered it on this channel, but I've been paying attention to it, with the uh, what's going on in the Red Sea, and then this uh, leader, this uh, military leader, this, I believe is a Hamas military leader. Let me go over to the Wall Street Journal to make sure here. Actually, I think they've got that on the CNBC homepage. Um, anyway, he was assassinated by a drone attack. And this, Josh, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that was a Hamas military leader. And he was in Lebanon. Can you go ahead and correct me on that? Or just give me that information real quick as I go back to this Zero Hedge article? Just want to confirm that uh, that's the organization that he was a part of. But anyway, getting back to the article here, while Josh checks that out, 150 per barrel oil. This is something I think we really need to think through. Because intuitively, you'd come to the conclusion that this must lead to consumer price inflation, or at least be a huge tailwind. Initially, I think that's true. But over the mid to long term, I believe that $150 oil would actually be disinflationary, would be recessionary. 
why is that? Because obviously oil is an input to every single thing that we use. Because if you don't have M2 money supply increasing at the same rate, this is actually where I become a monetarist. This is where my, my views become very Milton Friedman-like. <laughs> Not to put myself in that same category, but uh, th this is where I, I look at it definitely through the Chicago school, if you want to uh, put it in those terms. If the money supply is not increasing, even if you have $150 oil, and that's an input to every single thing that we use, you're, you're, there's certain things that you have to have that are very inelastic demand, such as putting gas in your car to go to work. So if we have, let's say, oil shooting up, then likely we're going to have gas prices shooting up as well. Okay, well, that you don't have a choice. You got to make that payment to the, the, the gas station. Now you could try to reduce it, but again, demand very inelastic. Uh, your, your heating costs for the winter, another good example. So what happens if you're having to spend more money over here is you have to not spend money over here. I, I call it, you're, you're just robbing Peter to pay Paul. So it is true that some prices of the stuff that you have to have continues to go up because the higher input cost to oil but over here, the stuff that you don't need, now all of a sudden you're, you're not buying those retail items. So I don't know that you can have broad-based consumer price inflation with higher and higher energy costs. I think at some point it becomes recessionary because people are having to allocate so much of their income to these few things that they have to have that that sucking income or revenue away from all these other businesses that start to go bust, lay off workers, and then you have unemployment go up, and you guys know the drill. So I, I, I think to sit there and just say that high oil prices are inflationary, I, I don't know that that's completely accurate. I, I think the devil's in the details there, and you've got to look at your time frame. For me, three, four months, okay, I get it. But over six months, I think it's disinflationary and likely recessionary. Now he points out that the U.S. and Western Europe in a recession worse than 2008. And his justification, I guess, would be this oil shock. And so this would imply that Jim Rickards sees it in, in a similar way, meaning the impact that higher oil prices would have on inflation, disinflation, or maybe even deflation. Meanwhile, if escalation scenarios play out in the Middle East, even in part expect, oh, whoops, sorry, getting to the next one here. In 1974, he points out that the Dow fell by 45%. And I want to point out, guys, that is not, that those are in nominal terms, excuse me, 45%. If you adjusted for inflation, and we're looking down 55, 60%, maybe even more, that would equate to a crash of over 15 thousand on the Dow today. 15,000. I don't know where the S&P would is, maybe 4,100. So it'd be S&P 2000. So think about what that would do to employment. Would that be considered a hard landing? And he, the correlation that he's using there is 2024 oil shock, if you want to call it that, and 1974 oil shock as well. And this is another thing that I agree with that I didn't highlight. He says the market could decline at least 30% on recession alone and as much as 50% if either Ukraine, Israel escalates or global financial crisis emerges. Don't rule it out. I think he's spot on. Commodities will be a mixed bag in 2024. Another thing that a lot of us are focused on, including me, 
and uh, in Rebel Capitals Pro. And actually, it's something that I go into extensive detail in my new 2024 kind of uh, exclusive video that I have for people that watch this channel. And Josh will put it up right in the chat. If you want to get a link to it, you can. It's, uh, what is it, George Gammon? Josh, what is it called? Yeah, I have my, it up right here. My financial game plan. Why do I keep forgetting that? My financial game plan for 2024. You can get the George Gammon plan for his own portfolio, which definitely talks about commodities and everything that Jim Rickards is saying at the link uh, that Josh just put up there. But getting back to this here. So basic commodities, and now this is Jim talking, such as copper, iron, or coal, one of my favorites, non-precious metals, and agricultural produce will generally decline as recession unfolds. Gold and silver should perform well. Okay, so here's where I'm going to disagree with him. I, I do agree that commodities will likely go down if you have a hard landing, although momentarily. That's your opportunity because I think we're a long-term super cycle. But gold and silver will as well. I think <laughs> Jim always likes to be very bullish on gold, which is his prerogative. But uh, if you look at past hard landings, gold gold goes down. Now, it doesn't go down very long. Uh, it's kind of a, a V-shape, if you will. But it, it, it usually goes down. So keep that in mind. Energy volatile. Couldn't agree more. A bigger and more acute stage two of banking crisis is coming. And this is bold. How many times have we been talking about this on the Rebel Capitalist channel or the George Gammon channel with whiteboards? I mean, nonstop. We always say that this is likely not over here. And he says we've had a quiet period uh, since June. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow Rebel Capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Now, let's go to the BTFP. I think this is a perfect opportunity to dive into some details before we conclude with uh, the rest of what Jim is saying. Okay, here we go. Oh, my. Wow. Josh, did you see this? No, I haven't. That is, that's pretty crazy. Wow. I did not. I mean, the last time we did a video on this, I think last week, or maybe the, the week prior, I have been paying attention because of the holidays. It shot up, but it had shot. Uh, I think I did a whiteboard on this. It shot up to like 120 or 120, I think low 120s, like 120, 121. And that was this move that you see just right where my little arrow is. But it's gone straight up since then. It's added another, call it $15 billion just in the last couple of weeks. Wow. 
So this is probably one of the inputs that Jim is using to make that prediction. Now, the pushback that you're going to hear from the bulls or the, the no-landers, if you want to call them that, <laughs> is that, oh, this is just fear-mongering. This is nonsense. It's a simple arbitrage because now what you have all these financial institutions that can get, let's say, 5.25% if they park their reserves on the, on the Fed's balance sheet. And uh, the alternatives yield a lot less because of the predictions, let's say, the market predictions for what the Federal Reserve is going to do. So you can go ahead and borrow in the BTFP because the BTFP, the interest rate that they charge, to be very clear, is tied to... Oh, I forgot the exact uh, interest rate, but it, but it's a very esoteric interest rate that the Fed looks at. It's a market rate, by the way. And then they just add 10 basis points. But this market rate, I think it's a short-term swap spread, I believe, right off the top of my head. But this uh, tries to predict to a certain degree what the Fed is going to do. So if the predictions are that the Fed is going to decrease in 2024, the market predictions then the Fed is going to add 10 basis points to that, and that's how they come to the BTFP interest rate. So what they're doing is if they can borrow at, let's just say, 4.8%, but Fed is paying 5.25, then it behooves them to borrow and then park the, that cash on the Fed's balance sheet and then pocket the spread. I get it, and I, I don't doubt that there are institutions that are doing that, but I don't think that explains everything. Why? Because... When you saw this move from, let's say, 65,000, 70,000 uh, billion all the way up to call it 110 or 112, which is when that arbitrage became an opportunity. That was right around mid-November of, of uh, 2023. You had the increase of, it basically doubled when there was no arbitrage opportunity. None. So I don't think that you can now honestly say that 100% of this increase is all arbitrage when it was doubling over a very short time frame with no arbitrage opportunity whatsoever. So this is something we really, really need to pay very close attention to. Josh, tell, tell Snyder to do a video on that. <laughs> all right. Getting back to Jim Rogers, Jim, Jim Rickards. Geez, I'm, I'm still kind of uh, a little rusty from the holiday. The new crisis will be focused on about 20 banks with 200 to 900 billion in assets, the so-called mid-sized regional banks that are not too big to fail. Crises of this sort can feed on themselves and cause losses to go far beyond the particular banks that may be the most vulnerable. A new global financial crisis could be the result. So this is a great point that just because we've got this problem right here in the regional banks, it doesn't mean that that doesn't have systemic risk or that doesn't impact the overall perceived risk in the banking system, not just in the domestic United States, but in the global monetary system with the Eurodollar banks. So what I'm saying there is we all know that liquidity, you guys know from watching my videos, at least this is my opinion. I guess there's no way to really prove this. But liquidity, in my opinion, is not a result of the Fed's balance sheet. It's not a result of all these things. The major factor for liquidity is risk or perceived risk. Because if the perceived risk is at normal levels, then the banks will provide all the liquidity the other banks need. Not an issue. Why would they not do that? 
and they can provide, they can create dollars just like the Fed can. It's it's the same stuff, right? So I believe that if you have perceived risk going up and up and up and up, by definition, liquidity will dry up regardless of what the Fed's doing. I think that overwhelms the Fed if the risk goes high enough. And therefore, if the regional banking crisis 2.0 or stage two, as Rickards is calling it, if that plays out, like he's saying, I think that that obviously increases perceived risks for banks globally or banks within this euro dollar system because it increases risks for domestic U.S. banks, U.S. being the largest economy. So therefore, you have liquidity dry up and all of a sudden, that that's, by the way, when the dollar would most likely really, really skyrocket. And uh, you would see treasury yields likely go down, uh, uh, among many other things. But uh, my point there is I think Rickards is spot on. And I don't know that this article goes into the nuance of what he was saying or that he's implying. And that's that just because we have a localized regional crisis doesn't mean that it won't turn into a global financial crisis because it involves the entire monetary system. Just like the mortgages um, exposed the fragility in the global monetary system in 2008 and 2009. If we would have, if the global monetary system would not have been fragile in 2008, 2009, that would not have been a GFC. It would have been a housing market crash. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it would not have been a GFC. So my, my, my point there is that right now, I think conditions and Rickards obviously agrees that conditions are set up for a GFC 2.0 because that monetary system is still incredibly fragile, if not even more fragile than it was in 2008. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing for freedom, liberty, free market, capitalism, and make sure you get my financial game plan for 2024. <laughs> there it is at georgegavin.com forward slash 2024. See you in the next video.